You know, you're a good writer, so these are not things that you really need to know because you always do it well. But uh, I know for advertising and for all sorts of writing, when I was first writing that book about Swamiji, I couldn't write it at all, at all, because I kept writing it to the people who didn't like him. And every time I would write anything, the people who didn't like him, you know, just psychically, would tell me that what I had just said was ridiculous and nobody would ever believe it. And I literally, I just kept writing it, trying to persuade people who were never to be persuaded. And finally, I really realized that that was simply not my audience. And I actually, there was a person, it happens to be a person who doesn't live here anymore, who was the exact person I needed to write to, who was open, who was positive, but relatively speaking, uninformed. So then I could start, it was a female, I could tell, I could tell her the story, and she didn't know it, and she wasn't credulous, she was a very bright woman, but she, but she was interested. And then when I started writing it to her, and I, I, and I got those other people out of my head, then I could write it. But, and it was actually, it was a very serious and difficult issue, because it was my internal critic that I was working with. But I personified it as, so everything I wrote was inadequate, of course, because I had a person who didn't want it. Um, and in the in advertising, my my own thought about writing the advertising is, um, well, Swami's rule for writing, which is the rule for writing, is, you know, give people the facts and let them make up their own minds. Don't tell them what they have to think. Just tell them what the situation is, which is why I have a personal prejudice against the words inspiring, joyful, um, but primarily inspiring and joyful are the two that I really don't like in the context of Ananda I'd rather tell people what happened and let them decide that it was inspiring and joyful although I the show don't tell rule but I loved also the way Swami said it is give people the space to define their own feelings and so you try to tell them I always try to tell them an interesting story and then if they're going to be interested they will be but I have to assume they're going to be interested or else I'm paralyzed absolutely paralyzed when I write and and this is another one which is a little hard to carry out. Ananda is unique. And therefore, I, I like our, everything that we write to not be able to be written by anyone else because it shouldn't be able to be written by anyone else because we aren't like anyone else. And that's not, it's not always possible to do that because sometimes just what's happening is generic. But there should be something in there that, uh, in, and you know, in... I remember I saw an ad once in a national magazine that, that turned out to be for, for the expanding light. And I couldn't tell it was for the expanding light until I got all the way to the bottom and saw that the expanding light was there. Because there was such an effort to be all things to all people that I couldn't tell that it was ours. Now, other people have different points of view. And, so, and I, I readily admit on my part that this is a prejudice but I just have a prejudice. I'm a little bit of a persnickety person when it comes to words. Every, you know. It's challenging, too, when the marketing is such a particular way and what you're offering is a very different nature. Or, if, you know, if you don't gear your presentation to the market, right? It's just very confusing, just like Tandif was saying, you know, because you could run down a lot of what Scientology says or what Ananda says or what, I can't think what else, you know, Deepak Chopra says or Wayne Dyer says, and... They do cross over a lot. And, and to a certain point, as I say, it becomes just completely goofy to try to always be completely different. But I, I always like to at least look at it. Because if, if this could easily be, if somebody else could easily just substitute their own name for this, 
then maybe there's another way to say it. And if nothing else, that it has some flavor that makes it feel like us. I don't know what that exactly is, but they're just our ways of doing it. Having done this for so many years, this is the story. Karen Gamow and I have been doing this together for a long time, and we're, we're kind of, we have some really old repeating conversations. <laughs> but we're, we've, we've worked it out. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've, she's taught me a lot about just the field I didn't know. Sometimes I get so far out there that it just I love it, and it, it has it has like a totally no effect on any human outside of me. <laughs> it just like the phrase is, it doesn't work. I love it. It's beautiful. It's literary. It's I think the turn of phrase is fantastic, and as advertising, it is a dog. Because <laughs> there are two, you know, it's not it's not your own book. That's why I've been writing my own books recently because it's more satisfying. But I learned to write by writing advertising. I didn't know how to write until I, I didn't. I couldn't write until we moved here, which was now three decades ago. And um, we, I, I had to start writing all the program guides, and they could only be so many pages. And we had all the programs, and they all had to fit. And so it was. You had to write to design, is what they call that, which is there's two and a half inches, and it has to be there. So the allotted words would be like seventy-five words, and my write-up would be a hundred and seventy-five. I would take 100 words out and I wouldn't have lost a single idea, which began to be sort of embarrassing, like what were all those other words doing in there? They were just clogging up the pipes. And that was when I first began to understand that you just say what you need to say, you don't just fill uh, a lot of space. But that, after doing that for like 15 years, then all of a sudden I could understand how you just say what you mean, you don't have to just fill it out. Then I became really terse in all my conversations. <laughs> and I'm trying to loosen up a little. Okay. I loosened up. And I've, I've learned. I've certainly progressed. So, now we are at class number 59, and we are on sutra number 337. This is not a contest, but we actually did 10 sutras last week, which is an absolute record in 58 classes because we are so far beyond ourselves that we can just run right through these. (laughs) And that's going to be true to the end of the book. So let's just see what happens here. But you know, um, uh, I, at least, and I hope I'm not the only one, the whole conversation about the sun and the moon and about the moon representing Divine Mother and all of that, you know, we've been going into a full moon. And last night I was walking and I was looking up at the moon and I have to thank Patanjali. I, I was just really looking at the moon differently, really appreciating just what he's written, what he wrote here, what we talked about, concentrating on the moon. Then, he, and then Swami proposes a different thing. Um, he says that if you concentrate on the moon, you learn about the solar system, I think. It gives knowledge of the stars' movements. And then Swami expressed skepticism and talked instead about the moon representing the mother aspect of God and how all knowledge can come to you. So I had a very different relationship standing out there with the moon. I don't think I attained, achieved samyama on the moon, but uh, the moon and I had a very nice experience. So it's nice to see that scripture can be applied on all levels, which is what that was about, including mine. We need a microphone over here to Tom.
Are we going to start with 337 then? We're going to start at 337. Well, yeah. maybe we could um, just go back to 336 because okay. 337 says from this understanding. It does, comes. doesn't it? Yeah. So, do you want me to just? I, I was going to do that. Okay. From this understanding, says 337, the understanding being that the sattvic intellect and the soul are completely different. From the understanding that the, the one is that the soul and the intellect are different, arises supraphysical perception, subtle hearing, touch, seeing, tasting, and smelling. In the stanza after this, Patanjali advises against the use of these, or indeed any miraculous seeming powers, but to gaze into the spiritual eye, to hear and commune with the sound of Om. Um, Both these are, in fact, meditation techniques. Surely his meaning was quite different. To display an ability, and then he goes on to say, um, if you sort of tell your neighbor what his wife cooked for him for dinner when you weren't there, is an intrusion on your neighbor's life and serves no purpose except to make him marvel at your powers. And they are food for your ego, in other words, and can only draw you yet into yet another veil of ignorance draw another veil of ignorance across the mirror of your self-esteem. Okay, and then he goes on to say that we should, that they're an obstacle. But let's work with this for a minute. So let me just see what we're talking about. You know, um, this whole section, I was just, I was following through on this because just later on we have this story about, about, Baba, Baba, Baba Gothnark, what's his name? Gorak. Just so slowly, I can't remember it. But the one who had all the powers and so on like that. And, and he was a great saint. And now, of course, I'm skipping ahead, but he developed all those powers. So I'm, I'm thinking in terms of when you reach a certain level of very high meditative ability and these capabilities start coming to you and you're spending all your time meditating because you don't have any other karma to work with and you're sort of beginning to move through these various stages. You know, it's, it's easy sort of from where we're sitting where none of this is part of our reality at all to just sort of be very casual about these things but I'm sure as those things begin to open up to you I mean, I'm assuming as those things begin to open up to you, they open up to you because many other dimensions are opening up to you. You know, many things are happening to you. And these are the byproducts, bear in mind. These are not practices. What he's saying there is, from this understanding, arise. He doesn't even say you can then focus and you can develop. It's that these things will begin to happen. And Swami himself says, you're looking into the light. But what Swami was saying is that suddenly being able to perceive um, without the senses, but just perceive directly, which is what we're talking about. Master talks about this in the SRF version of the Gita commentary. There's a whole lot of stuff at the beginning, if if I'm remembering correctly. I've only looked at that a few times and very little. I think it's where they talk about that. But in any case, Master talks about this whole reality of everything that we do with every sense that we have that's external is reflective of an internal sense. That the, the power to see, the power to hear, the power to taste, everything all exists within us. What we're doing with our senses is we're having an experience which our brain is interpreting. I saw a very um, 
delightfully schmaltzy movie about a woman who had lost her sight and then, you know, she had the operation and then she could see again and it was, it was one of those really just great movies. But uh, interestingly, and I, I presume this was factual, because in the movie she had some kind of uh, degeneration of something or another, Corn, uh, not the cornea, but something. And so she'd been able to see till she was 16 and then she'd lost her sight and then for so many years. But the doctor said to her, whether this operation will work, which was uh, some kind of a transplant, depends on whether your brain still remembers how to see. Whether it was imprinted enough strongly on your brain that when, again, your brain receives impulses, your brain will be able to read them. It, it wouldn't depend on whether the eyes were working. Isn't that an interesting fact? From the yogic point of view, I thought, ah, that's why I'm watching this schmaltzy movie, because isn't that an interesting fact? Give us... Uh, Saran, yes. Something to say because... You're going to say something since, interesting about people yes. who can't hear, aren't you? Since we're digressing. No, actually, we're talking about the people who can't see. Uh-huh. When I was in Spain, I um, was working with deaf-blind, and so I went to various... Slo- organs. Speak slowly enough. When Spain, you were working with deaf and blind people. Uh-huh. People who are both deaf and blind. And uh-huh. so I went to various organizations for the blind... And in one particular case, I was talking with the principal who told us the story of a young child. The child, when, they were, when the child was born, the doctors accidentally dropped a little bit of some kind of medicine in the eye that shouldn't have been in the eye, some kind of vaccine or something. And by accident, he dropped it in the child's one eye and blinded that particular eye. Well, the doctor is, you know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he wants to do something about it so that we, the child Please wouldn't lose. Please speak more slowly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh-huh. The doctor wanted to do something so that the child would not lose the sight in that one eye. So he told the parents with this young baby to patch the good eye, wow. the eye that could see well perfectly, patch the good eye, forcing the child to use the bad eye every day, every day, and maybe take it off for, you know, every now and then, 24 hours or something. So at the age of four, the parents brought the child to the school for the blind and found that when the child's good eye was not patched and the bad eye that the doctor was trying to improve by forcing the child to use it, the child would draw like this. No vision in the good eye. No No functional vision in in the the good eye. Even though the eye was perfectly good, but from a very young age, the doctor said, don't expose that good eye to sight. Don't let the child Could see. Could he see out of the bad eye or not? No. So the child was made blind? Yes. Yes. And so the teacher said, because you, in, you know, in this culture, you absolutely could not counter what the doctor had said. The teacher said, okay, if the doctor said that you can only let the child see one day out of the week, I think it was you know, Sunday the child can see, the, the teacher said, let the child see four hours out of every day. And just pound, you know, pour in visual experiences and explaining and visual experiences, trying to regain use of that good eye that was no longer seeing. Isn't it, did it work? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're saying is that there's... But I have seen over and over with deaf kids that it doesn't work. The parents who don't put hearing aids on their hard-of-hearing child, wanting the child to decide when they get to be seven or eight whether they want the hearing aids on, those kids can't effectively use their hearing. Because the brain never developed the capacity to interpret the signals because it's really about the brain. That was, that's the point, to decide whether or not... Because the brain has to be trained to be able to do it 
And that was the same thing with the transplant. We can fix the input, but if it doesn't have any uptake, then there's no way it can be used. So now, what the masters say about that, and this is, this is very hard to capture, all our experience is vicarious because we're not actually seeing, tasting, touching. We are using our bodies and our brain is having the experience. We're not directly having that experience. And they say that because when we have the direct experience, which is to activate the inner senses, is how Master calls it, then we realize that that is a direct experience because the brain is not an intermediary. More subtle realities are in play. And the, uh, I have this quote from, I believe it's from Swamiji, and he says, or from Master, I don't know who said it, but he said, we spend all our time feeding and caring uh, for something that is not really ours, and that is the body and the ego. And there comes a time when we realize that we've just been taking care of someone else. <laughs> we've not really been taking care of ourselves because ourself is neither the body nor the ego. I mean, these are really fascinating thoughts, but a little bit hard to get around. So when he's talking about here, when we finally, and see, he, I guess, not, you know, you all will know this, I don't have to keep saying it, I'm guessing. But the awakening of these inner senses come when we realize that the intellect and the soul are completely different. Okay, let's, I don't know exactly what Swami means by the word intellect, but in the way we're using it now, where it's the brain interpreting signals and then the intelligence deciphers those signals and makes a decision, this is my mother's voice, you know, this is the taste of the peas which I don't like and this is the fudge which I do like. I mean, that's all, those are all decisions that are being made by our intellect, let's say. But the soul is a completely different reality. The soul has a direct experience. And when we understand that the intellect and the soul are different, this is what these two sutras are saying, then all of a sudden we, our senses work directly. Or we're able to awaken the capacity for our senses to work directly. We don't have to work through our brain anymore. That's why you can be clairvoyant. You don't have to be sitting at your neighbor's dinner table tasting the soup because you, can, you, you have expanded your awareness. Others of these speak about this. When you're no longer identified with the one body you're in, then you can be in all bodies. Well, you're, well, you're expanded. You're not completely self-realized because he's talking in here about the awakening of these powers is the result of certain enlightenment, but the powers themselves are not the sign of being enlightened. That's where Baba Garaknath um, was a little off because he thought the powers themselves were important, but it wasn't. It was they were a sign of a certain advancement, but inherently they didn't. They they were not it. Yes. So just for terminology, when we refer to the senses, we're talking about, um, for instance, the part of our body that we use, like the taste buds or the eyeballs, plus the brain processing it, that's sort of like a regular sense, the sense of taste or the sense of sight, and then that's all one thing, and then that's separate from like the, the power of taste, the, the power of exactly. sight, which is more an uh, aspect of like the astral body. The, the soul? 
the aspect of the soul. I mean, Causal body. <laughs> the fact that we can taste is because there is an inherent capacity to taste. The whole, in the Bible, when the Jews were finally taken to the land of milk and honey, um, Swamiji says when you do the um, kachari mudra just so, and you can pull the tongue way back up, back into the nasal passages, and you make a connection there, there's a taste that tastes like uh, ghee and honey, the nectar. And so when they talked about the land of milk and honey in the Bible, they were not talking about this uh, agriculturally fruitful place. They were talking about going into the interior world. And, but they all, you know, they, they describe it in terms of what, we, what the average person knows if they're talking. And then the person who knows internally knows otherwise. Ma- Master, and I, I keep saying I think it's in that book where I read it, but he made a, a big deal about everything has its external and its internal reality. The external exists because it already exists. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't deeper. And I think it's, it would be deeper than the astral body. I think it would be the attributes of the soul. I guess the astral body Has could also be fallible too because it's the blueprint of the physical body which might be born blind. And if you're when born I would blind, go, you're... I, I would go backwards from that. It's like, it's like, I mean, the astral body is an, still an expression of a more subtle form. And so it goes up, up that way. The physical is the least, yeah, but the pattern goes all the way through. It's a chain, so it's you can a go chain. Yeah, that, that's what the, that's what the autobiography says. You don't have to just use these physical organs in order to to activate those experiences. You can activate them from because it's not physical. So people who have synesthesia, and what's that? That's when you actually like see sounds. I see. Uh huh. Um, you know, like, what is that then? <laughs> um, well, it's either a scramble of the neurons of the brain or it's an awakening of more subtle senses. Who, would, who can say? And, no, there's a, there are certain stories which I've read also of blind people who, who, who can... There's the story of that, that boy, young man, I can't remember the name of the book, but he was in the French Resistance against the Nazis. Remember that very interesting story? And... When he he went blind as a child, and he he could still see, but he he could see the shapes and he could see internally, and he navigated in the world because he could he could tell he could just sort of see the astral forms is what it really sounded like, and he his parents just believed that he could see, and so they treated as if he could, and they believed what he told them that he could tell where they were and he could see the shapes of things and he was seeing internal light is what he was really seeing. And he talked about when he was a teenager, another, he, there was another teenage boy who was blind, who was very depressed and he went to talk to him and as he put it, he was surprised to learn that that blind boy couldn't see because somehow from the beginning he was always told that he couldn't. Whereas this, and, and this child, this man... Uh, when he became a young man, he helped with the, the resistance in France when they were Nazi-occupied. And he, he could tell who was lying and who wasn't because their colors were different. And he became an absolutely critical person to their network because he could tell who was, who was sincere. Because the ones who came in who weren't, they, had, they were a different color. Yeah. And he could, he could see lust, he could see temper... Because it was all different color, he could he, he could read people's character because he's, what he saw was their astral colors. 
I mean, when, you know, it was very, it was extremely, I wish I could remember the name. Does anybody remember the name of that book? Well, don't take out your phones. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting book to read. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get a sense of... Excuse me. In yeah. his case, I believe he was seeing the astral forms. That's what you felt from... You don't think so? Okay, what do you think so? No, no, he actually saw. He, he saw color, seriously. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. No, there's, there are blind people who, who navigate through the sense of hearing, and I've read and seen a lot of that too, who feel, who echolocation or whatever all that is. That's a whole different thing. This man particularly, because about the color, because he saw people in color and he saw their thoughts in colors. So there was a visual component to it. It wasn't just sound, because color is not sound. Do you think color is sound? No, okay. I just was. Oh, there's. Oh, we can go really far into this. Yeah, there's a, a, a an autobiography of a, a an autistic man, who's called uh, Born on a Blue Day. You may have seen or read about him, a real savant, and uh, all 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 numbers have colors. And he was astonished to find out that, you know, like a number like six thousand seven hundred and sixty-six looks very similar to 5,000 to many people. He couldn't figure out how it possibly could look. Th- how could you possibly mistake one number for another? It's just like it was absolutely insane to him. Everyone looked completely different. And he saw them this way and, you know, who knows? I mean, that's a whole other thing, that kind of sensitivity. But let's, we're, I'm, this today is the day called digression. Go ahead, Stephen. So given what's being said here, I'm, I'm just trying to get some perspective on the higher purpose of the physical senses, right? There must be some... The higher purpose of the physical senses. Yeah, I mean, because we talk on our path a lot, or at least I do when I give classes, about this idea that the senses are, um, you know, we're deceived by them. It's the lowest level of... um, It's the lowest level of reality, and it's the lowest level of our, our, our relationship to it. So we're looking for a higher expression, and that's why we our teachings enable us to go far deeper than that physical reality. And yet here it seems that the senses at a physical level have a relationship to these deeper senses that we're talking about, these intuitive senses, if I can use that term. So there must be something that the senses teach us or lead us to, not that we should indulge in them. So I'm just trying to get a sense of that balance. The, The way I would think about it would be this. Well, first of all, it's the way we're made, and we have to be able to relate to this world. We've just been talking about blind and deaf people and the obstacles they face in relating to this world. I mean, it it works better because the world's set up for all five of them to be functioning. Um, But the senses also bring us many very, very refined experiences, and those refined experiences awaken within us an appreciation between the difference between gross and refined, and awaken within us a longing for greater and greater refinement. And so, you know, nothing is inherently bad. Everything is directional. The trouble with our senses is that they are focused outward, and therefore they draw us in that direction. So their, their negative potential is that they're, uh, they keep us uh, distracted. And, and the vicarious experience 
um, it preoccupies us and we're disinclined to seek the direct experience. So maybe that's what... But they also awaken us to the possibility of refinement because if you can have a sweet taste, you can have a bad taste. If you can hear a beautiful sound, you can hear an awful sound. And so they begin to uh, show us um, different levels. Well, here we're talking, what we're talking about in this sutra is that we're not using the body or the brain anymore. We're simply interiorized and discovering that those same things exist on the interior world. Then like so, so many other things in life, it's a double-edged sword and we want to land on the right side. In other words, use our energy appropriately so that it brings right. us to the highest expression. But if you have a thorn in your foot, you may use another one to take it out. So if we're going to be distracted anyway, if we consistently feed ourselves with refined energies, we're going to feed ourselves with something. This is, this is what it is to be a yogi, as, as Swamiji defines it somewhere. A yogi works with what is and then gradually tries to build upon that into, a, into the right direction. As opposed, and this is how Swami defined a jnani, who just rejects this entire plane and refuses to relate to it, neti neti. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. But in the Gita, basically it says it's a lot easier to be a yogi. It's a lot easier to start with the body that we're in and the experience we're having and then try to use that to reach, to gradually refine our understanding than to just try to repudiate it completely. That's a very difficult path. That's how it's described. Rejected that way, you've really got to know where you're going. I, this one, I found this little note from someone who was very interesting. This woman who had a very serious case of cancer and eventually it took her life. And uh, at the beginning, she did not want to have uh, medical intervention. She was going to heal it naturally. Um, in the end, she had medical intervention, which extended her life, but did not, in the end, save it. Well, nobody's life in the end is saved, but you know... It still it took her sooner, but not as soon. But Swami just said really simply, he said, yes, of course you can heal yourself, but it takes discipline and willpower. He, and then he just said really simply, do you have enough discipline and willpower? No, he said concentration and willpower. Do you have enough concentration and willpower to heal yourself? It was such a simple question. No, sir. <laughs> you know, because he was honest. It was a potential, but it wasn't a reality. Now, why did I say that? What, oh, that had to do with, you know, just working with what is. You can have a, and the, if we're too, if we're too, too much of a jnani, when we don't, when it's a presumption, it's presumptuous to act as if we really could just banish it with a stroke. Do you have the concentration and willpower, really, to just not have to relate to this world or do you have to just start from where we are and just start moving with it and then just taking every dimension that we're experiencing and gradually you know move from gluttony to refinement from addiction to unhealthy foods to at least eating healthily all you know just step by step all of those different things that makes sense okay was there any other questions in the room no, God knows where we were. Wow, Isawi. Okay. 
I was also thinking about how the, you know, the ego would be tempted. Oh, I know, this is the other thing. It's like all through the, the life that we're living now, the stage of, of spiritual development that we're on, we're always going through experiences in which our um, detachment from this world, our uh, humility, our ability to understand that God is the doer, um, to not take things to our ego, to not have our feelings hurt. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a big long story, isn't it? And every time we think we've reached a little tiny plateau, our horoscope shifts (laughs) and everything gets hard again. I mean, it's just the way it's going to be. Why would that stop? You know, because it, if, if a person is not in Nurbhakalpa Samadhi and completely done, then some way or another that same dynamic is going to have to keep playing itself out. So whatever it is that tempts us now, it, it, considering karma to be vertical stripes up our spine and us walking around a spiral staircase and passing those vertical stripes over and over again, this is my own personal explanation of this with the stripes being wider and narrower so sometimes we zip past it and sometimes it takes almost a whole time around thinking just that's just an image that's not that's not an actual way the energy works that's just an image of how it might work Um, if we think of that spiraling up all the way to enlightenment we're just going to have to follow those same threads all the way up aren't we so something is going to have to tempt our ego. Something is going to have to distract us. We're going to have to keep meeting and overcoming tests, is what I'm trying to say. So when we reach a certain stage of development, these powers start arising of their own. And suddenly, just imagining it, we have that that's what we're being tested about. Because maybe by that point, we're just living in a Himalayan cave. There's nothing going on around us. We're no longer compelled, as Sri Keshwar says, to be in association with people in order to refine all those parts of ourselves. We're just sitting there, just step by step, trying to refine our consciousness. So these supraphysical capacities come up, and there we are. And they, I'm sure they, they don't look unattractive to us, and we don't necessarily have the sutra in front of us that says, oh, wow, you know, this is going to be an obstacle. Just because, with all due respect, think about your life today. (laughs) How many things attracted you that maybe shouldn't have? How many thoughts went through your mind that maybe would be nicer if they hadn't? What's going to be different? It's just the, the substance of the distraction will be different because what's attracting us now won't. So it has to be something else. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the realization that as above, so below, and that the habits and the attitudes and the way we're dealing with life now, it's, it's, this just, it's just going to keep going step by step. I talked about this in the context, which I won't tell the whole thing because I have so many times, of that Baba that we met up in uh, Badrinath, who put himself in the box during the winter months, let his body be buried under the snow, and then went off to be with Babaji. And I said to Swami, he's talked about it so casually. And then Swami said, well, at a certain point, it's just natural. And you don't think of it as odd. And I thought that was an odd thought until I said to someone in satsang that when I was 
22, I met Swami Kriyananda. I moved to Ananda Village a little over a year later, and I never looked back. What did your parents say? What about this? And I just looked at them like, huh? And then I realized at a certain point, it's natural. And what was so natural to me at that point was really, for this particular person, just incomprehensible. That I would have just walked away, no job, no health care, no house, live in a tent, you know, nothing. It wasn't like, well, it just was, there was nothing. But it never crossed my mind because it was just the natural thing to do. There was Swami Kriyananda, he was there. I mean, what else would I have done? To me, it was like, duh. But that's, I'm sure, how that Baba was thinking about it. No, you just leave your body, you go. So even though we're hearing about this and trying to just understand it, not to bring it down, really, but to bring ourselves up and realize that it's the, what we're doing now is the building block of our liberation. It's not like at another point something else is going to happen. It's every attitude, every decision. That's why Master put so much emphasis on right attitude. Because once you have right attitude, then you can just keep using that no matter what the circumstance. You always know what to do. And attunement, and attunement being one of the right attitudes, because you don't have to know anything if you have the right attitude and you know how to be in tune. Because then whatever you're facing, you'll know how to do. It, it, I was very, I mean, naturally I'm a great fan of Swami Kriyananda, but I've also been very very practically impressed um, over the years of developing what we've developed here because, you know, we just knew what to do. And we knew what to do because somewhere along the line Swamiji had given us the principles. And we just, we had the principles and we'd, we'd absorb them in principle. So when the circumstances were very different, we were still, uh, we could we could retreat back to the the source of it, and then come back out again to the specific. And you, I'm not saying it without, without ever making any mistakes. No. <laughs> but still, it was impressive. And this whole path is like that. If we really study it carefully and absorb it appropriately, absorb it as it's intended, then it would just, would just go from here to infinity. Uh, but, but, and it, because, the de- because we'll have will have the right skills. I mean, Patanjali is one of those. That's why we're spending so much time on things that are not really ours yet, but each one of them has something to offer us um, that will serve us in the end. And at least helps us to understand. And, and not to be... Um, that's interesting. You have to be, have a great attitude of reverence and at the same time not be overawed. You know, Just realize that, well, this is natural. This is who we are. That, that's the realizing, this is me. This is not me today, but this is me tomorrow. This is not really so far beyond where I am. I just need to see it. Yes, of course. Because we already vaguely know that the intellect and the soul are not the same, don't we? It's just that um, if you put them right in front of us, we might not be able to tell the difference immediately, but in principle we know the difference, don't we? Yeah. Okay, any thoughts or comments on any of that? I mean, this has been fun because every time I come to this class, I think, oh no, here we go again. Okay, so shall we go on? We're not going to break a record tonight. Okay, 338. These supraphysical powers, supraphysical, that, is that an actual word? Supra means beyond, is that? 
the supra-physical powers, cities, are obstacles to the attainment of samadhi, for they take the mind outward. One obstacle to that attainment is that they can foster attachment to them. When I was a child, I came upon a way of beating the system. If ever a fairy were to grant me three wishes, I'd make the third of my wishes the chance to ask three more wishes, and so on for as long as I liked. Can't you just see Swamiji with his little child's face, just lying in bed at night, sorting that out? You know, when the fairy comes, this is what I'm going to do. Attachment to powers, similarly, can lead one to never-ending involvement. Now, bear in mind, you know, this is not all, because, see, this is the way the attachment to powers start working. You can start using them in a way that seems beneficial to people. And so you can start helping people with the powers that you have. Look, you can tell them things they don't know. You might be able to heal. You might be able to intervene. You know, and then you become attached to being able to do that. So it's not like it's just obvious that I'm going to start being a magician and why would I want to do that? It, it, delusion is not going to insinuate itself into your life. In, it's not going to come in a little red suit with horns and a little tail. He's going to make himself seem really reasonable. There's a beautiful um, story told by this woman who called herself Peace Pilgrim. There's a book somewhere called Peace Pilgrim, which is really worth reading. She was the real deal. American woman, she doesn't really give you any context about who she was. She really just passes over her life. At a certain point, she she had a genuine spiritual awakening and decided that uh, she just left her home and started walking for peace. And she walked thousands and thousands of miles. I I don't know if she left the U.S. or not, but she was all, all around this country. But there was a certain point in her process where the first thing that happened to her is that she developed healing, the power to heal. So that just came to her. She had the power to heal. So what did she start doing? She started healing people. And that would seem like an obvious thing to do with the power to heal, wouldn't it? But she could heal anyone, pretty much, is what she was describing. And so she just started healing people. And she had this startling experience of there was this woman who had MS or some other serious debilitating disease. And she was able to take that disease away from her. And as soon as the woman became well and able to take care of herself, her husband left her because her husband was only staying with her because she was sick. So, of course, immediately she got sick again. And that, for the for Peace Pilgrim, uh, was a real wake-up call. And she suddenly realized that merely because she could do this does not mean that she should do it. But you see how easily it would just could insinuate your, itself into you? you? I have this power, why wouldn't I use it? And so then you have to go through all of that. What was she, what was she really attached to? And it's, just, it's a subtle misunderstanding. Well, of course I'm attached to alleviating suffering. Well, what actually alleviates suffering? Is it to take away the people's circumstances or is it to understand what they're trying to learn and what's going to help them to learn it? So she, instead of healing people, she learned to ask God whether or not she should heal them. Yeah? Uh, it was an advanced yogi. He developed the power to read other people's minds. Yeah. And it occurred while he was riding on the bus to go see his guru. Hmm. 
And he realized that he could implant a thought in their mind, so he just tried it. Wow. And it worked, and he, he planted it. So, wow. When he arrived, the guru spent an entire day excoriating him for misusing this wow. siddhi that he had developed. And, wow. You know, um, so, yeah, anyway. just exactly that. Yeah, because it's, it's such a danger to his development. Yes, exactly. Now, Sri Yukteswar used that power to... Um, it was he didn't well he did put the plant, he put the thought out there that the uh, cauliflowers were under the bed in the ashram, but I'm sure he did it in a but the, he he was you know later when he was laughing so much about it he said so the poor man wanted a cauliflower why don't you you had six of them let him have one of yours so he implanted it you know to, to help satisfy this man's desire and teach the lesson but yeah there it was it was perfectly transparent and he could do it easily but why would he. What well, you have to ask if it's going to be beneficial or not to do such a thing, but you you see how it all can all how it could all easily work, and you can see the lesson in it for us. The same thing, just because I can do something, is it really right to do it? What what am I trying to do here? Because alleviating suffering is not as important as alleviating the cause of suffering. And if you take away someone's opportunity to learn, have you really served them? Or not. And I had to learn that in my own small way, and by, not by any super-physical powers, by no means, but just because I'm an energetic and a relatively efficient person, and I'm good at other people's crises. <laughs> but I used to do too much for people, just because I could. I mean, meaning that I had the energy to do it. And I began to see that, you know, what am I doing here? And I also realized in my own self that one of the reasons I was doing that is because their pain made me nervous. And I I really needed to make them feel better. I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the respect, is actually what it came down to. I didn't respect them enough to think they could cope with their own lives. I had to rush in and make sure that it was managed properly. That's slightly exaggerated, but only just a little. But you can see how that works. How, how, would I, how would I know that wasn't a good thing? I look so helpful after all. And after all, I look so helpful. You know, you see how these things just come in you and you suddenly, and then you realize, that, well, there's something not happening properly here. And imagine if you have real capacity, not just a little extra energy. So as as Swami said, you have to be careful because... I didn't read it properly. I was monkeying up the words. Attachment. Right. And also he said, these are food for your ego, in other words... They are food for your ego, in other words, and can only draw yet another veil of ignorance across the mirror of your self-esteem. Whoa. Okay. Let's all take a break. I think that's all we can handle for the moment. So I just said that these lead attachment to powers can lead one to never-ending involvement, and that's what we were talking about. We we're trying to make that realistic for our lives now, um, so we won't think it'll be so obvious later. <laughs> Number 339, because very great souls get trapped by these things. That's the other thing you have to realize. I mean, this story, if we're going to get to Baba Goraknath. What's his name? Goraknath. But anyway, you know, he, he became liberated once he got over this, so he had a lot going for him. So we have to have respect for delusion. Um, 339. By loosening karmic bondage to the body 
and by mental identification with a new one, one can enter into the body of another. My guru displayed this power constantly. He went into the bodies of each of his disciples every day. He said once, it can be a terrible experience if that person is suffering in delusion. Once he said to someone, you have a sour taste in your mouth, haven't you? How did you know, she inquired. Because, he answered, I am as much in your body as I am in my own. At a certain point, you see, it becomes natural. People sometimes challenged him on the subject of sex. This is an amazingly interesting paragraph. People sometimes challenged him on the subject of sex. How can you talk against it, they asked. You've never experienced it. He said, ah, but I've been in the bodies of those who were experiencing it. (gasps) He answered, and I know from experience that compared to divine bliss, the pleasure of sex is nothing. And also, of course, he has a karmic memory too, but... Wow. Okay. He told us a fascinating story, which he said had really happened. A young man died, and he didn't say that it was bad. He said, compared to. See, that's the whole point. That's a very important distinction. He didn't say that it was horrible, that this was a bad thing. He just said, I I know what it is, and compared to divine bliss, it's really nothing. But that's, that's the point. You know, it's very important to get that nuance because otherwise you come out saying, you know, this is a terrible thing. No, no. It's just not as good as, it's not as good as it gets. You know, you, you think it's the apex, but really, it's really just a starting point. Yeah, yeah. Saying get? Stale cheese. Stale cheese compared to... Okay. He told us a fascinating story that he said really happened. A young man died and his body was on the funeral pyre awaiting cremation when an old yogi came out of the nearby jungle and cried, Stop! I need that young body. (laughs) At that moment, the old man fell to the ground and the young man leaped off the pyre and ran off into the jungle. The young man's relatives were left with the task of cremating the corpse of a complete stranger. (laughs) Well, at least they had the satisfaction of knowing it was the body of a saint, the corpse of a saint. (laughs) You can just see him, like, why bother to have to go into the womb and then childhood and all of that? This perfectly good body is about to be turned to ashes. Let's just play a switcheroo here. Few people can manifest such a few people can manifest such a power. But every devotee can and should, through empathy and compassion, be sensitive to the needs of others, to their physical suffering and their emotional hungers. So again, it's all directional. Like we're so deeply identified with the body that we're in. I've been really thinking about, you know, men and women a lot. It's like you know, the, the male approach to life is very different than the female approach. And the female is, um, I, 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 am, I live in a female body and I always think about living in a female body. I, whenever I think of future incarnations, I realize the gender is always female. I, that was just sort of an odd thing that occurred to me. Even though I can also really understand the male side, but I... I just had to accept recently that I never really take the male side as seriously as I take the female side. And that's a very serious mistake. It really is. 
because it's, it's perfectly, it's absolutely valid. But to really get inside, to, to allow yourself to really get inside of someone else's completely reality and understand, uh, well, this was in Swami's Secrets of Emotional Healing, too. He, he was this one about conceit. Was, he said, how you overcome conceit is you realize that everybody's need to understand truth in their own way is just as real as yours. Just as simple as that. And that at the center of everyone is the same divine force. And that's just really easy to say, but when you actually walk around in your life, we're so prejudiced in favor of ourselves and our own experience. We just are. I mean, I realize that, you know, the... The, the, the woman in me, the female in me, is always trying to get the males to be more sensitive to their feelings. And the men, as a rule, are men because they're really not interested in their feelings. <laughs> and like really way not interested, with good reason. You know, as Swamiji said after he wrote, I mean, he, he said this when he wrote the book, The Secrets, Secrets for Women, and he went deep, deep into the female psyche for about three, three days to write that book. And he, during that time, he said he just couldn't, he couldn't relate to his responsibilities or anything because he wasn't himself. He'd gone into the female side. And after he finished and came back to himself, he said to us, and we knew him well enough to take this well, it was awful, he said. <laughs> I mean, he just said that. He said that all that roiling around with emotions and feelings all the time, he just said it was awful. It, you know, and he's a very sensitive guy, but he's a, ma- he's a male person. He said, I've been a male person for a very long time, meaning many incarnations. And, you know, we laugh at it. The females laugh at it. But the other day I just thought, wow, what freedom. Imagine, really, not having to just deal with all this and think about it all the time. That would be wonderful. It, 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 all these years, I'd never, that had never fully crossed my mind how much freedom there could be in not being female. I've tended to think more that the men should be more like us. You know, it's just like, but how stupid, really. Just how incredibly egoically self-centered. And, and so here he's you know, saying to us, by, wherever it said it, by loosening the karmic bondage to the body you're in, and by mental identification with a new one, which is mean one that's not yours, you can really understand other people. Maybe not to the extent of lifting a young body off a funeral pyre, but we're always trying to make other people be like us. And even when we're not, there's that little bit of um, what I would call tolerance (laughs) rather than actual really embracing of another person's reality. Tolerance is really not the same as actually appreciating that from inside them what they are is exactly as important as what it is to be inside you. Isn't that obvious? But I just, it wasn't really until I really just recently read that, that it, you know, that's been a big struggle for a person, you know, like myself, who has a very strong, you know, sense of everything. <laughs> you know, every, every virtue is a vice. Every, everybody's weaknesses. It's a very interesting fact that I've observed that almost everybody's or everybody's Vices are their virtues carried just a little too far. 
You're going right to the center and then you've got too much momentum and you go off to go on to the other side. You know, a strong-minded person like myself who's got a lot of ideas and a lot of confidence in that, I just go a little too far and all of a sudden you don't have any <laughs> because they're all mine. You just push a little too far. You don't see because we're so identified and often we're so nervous, insecure, anxious, afraid, you know, we have to make the world conform to the picture that I have. What will happen if it doesn't? Where does that come from? Because we're so deeply identified. Master said somewhere, or Swami, I've been doing a lot of reading, I'm losing the sources. Uh, You know, man is very uncomfortable. Spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. Mankind, humankind, is very uncomfortable without a circumference. So we create limitations. Isn't that interesting? We just create limitations because we're not comfortable. We have to have an edge. And that means that I'm on this side and you're on that side. But just think how marvelous to just be able to feel. That's why few people can manifest such a power, but every devotee can and should, through empathy and compassion, be sensitive to the needs of others. And how can you be sensitive to their needs if you're so busy in your own mind that you don't even know they have any or that you don't take them seriously or you try to solve them by making them stop being themselves and be like you? I I used to do a lot of couples counseling. I don't do it anymore, but um, there was a little cycle I had where I had all these women coming to me and their husbands were almost perfect. Just a few little things. Just tweak them just a little. And... In every one, it was if they would just be a little more like me, and a little less like them. And it was almost always if they were just a little more of a woman and a little less of a man. Just, it was just so, it, it, God was just teasing me, you know, and just showing me this. And it was just all the things that women value. And men don't. There you have it. But if they'd wanted to be women, they would have been. Duh. <laughs> Okay, let me see if there's anything else here. All right. And yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, a good, it's a fun exercise, too, actually, to really, just when you're standing there with people, you don't have to do it in a way that's except in your own heart and mind. Just actually, just try to loosen the identification with yourself and just try to feel. I was actually remembering in the Awake movie, it, it reminds us of something that was true, that at a certain point, Master was just so exhausted with America after he'd been through, I think, Dharananda's betrayal and all of that. This was in that documentary, Awake. And so he just went to Mexico for a while just to get away. And uh, he didn't know if he was going to come back because he was just so sick of it. And I was just thinking, oh, he went to Mexico. You know, Spanish-speaking people are different than English-speaking people. Mexico is not America. It has a whole different way of being. I remember we had a gentleman from South America who lived in our community for a while and he just used to have mobs and mobs of other South Americans in all the time. And it it was a little confusing for our community because there were always these mobs of his friends who really didn't have a lot to do with our community, were perfectly fine people, but he was so confused. Like, of course we would have all these people. I mean, these are my people. This is just sort of how we all are. I remember when we had the World Cup. 
here the year we had the World Soccer Cup and the Brazilians were here, and I think the Brazilians won, or the Brazilians at least went really far. And so here in Stade Palo Alto, we were overrun with really happy Brazilians. And they're not Americans. They were, I mean, they were really literally dancing and singing down the middle of the street, and there were just great mobs of them having a great time, and they were you know, in the restaurants and dancing in the rest. I mean, just completely different way of relating to reality because there were Brazilians. We went on a pilgrimage one year when we were taking our India pilgrims and uh, I had never met anyone from Brazil, I don't think, at that point. And we had one Brazilian on our trip and she she was not American. I mean, that's a pretty dumb thing to say, but she was so, like, not American. And what she was doing was just so natural to her. And I thought of Master just going to Mexico wanting to be among Spanish-speaking people and that whole flow of energy and just get out of the American way of doing things. You know, so much more heart, so much more relaxed, all these just different things that were true. Pardon me? So less structured. Structured. Well, what was that? Let's see. A Mexican asked an Irishman, do you have in your culture and in your Gaelic language an equivalent word to our word manana? <laughs> the Irishman thought for a term, time and said, Nothing that has that same sense of urgency. <laughs> so, there, there you but uh, Master, of course, and, but you see, we, actually, uh, friends were talking yesterday about some kind of statistic that they read. And they were talking about this and I, I can't really give the validity to this. I'll just say that it was presented as if it was valid, and these, these people would know. There was somebody did a big statistical study to discover who, what, what ethnic group or national group has the highest IQs. And this, this recent study, and that, that it was um, Asians, Chinese, you know, had the highest IQs, with the exception of the fact that Jews have always had the highest IQs. (laughs) Always. (laughs) From the beginning of. They've always had the highest IQs. And it was interesting when he said that, because I said, well, I was born Jewish because I have that very intense interest, I have had, I'm going to try to put in the past tense, of that sort of driving kind of intellect, the particular, and because I'm Jewish, I can say Jewish way of thinking. And that was my vibe. And that's, that's my connection to Judaism, otherwise I don't really have one. But what it is is that all these different ethnic groups, it's, it's such an interesting way to look at it. You see, there are some Jewish traditions that say there is something called a Jewish soul. Really. That if you're Jewish, you're always Jewish. But they don't have an afterlife and they don't have reincarnation. So you're Jew, you're Jew not, it's not cultural, it's uh, cosmic. But no, it's not 90 years, it's forever. You're just forever. But let me go back to what I'm saying. Um, They don't have reincarnation, so it doesn't matter. But let me try to finish the thought. Oh, yes. Each of these ethnic groups, you see, holds a certain vibration. And there is a vibration. I I don't speak any language but but English, so I can't say this. But people who speak multiple languages, and I know some number of you in the room do, you're different when you speak different languages because the language itself allows you to say or to do things or the sound of the words, just whatever it might be, so I understand and so I have observed. But just a moment. And uh, 
So those ethnic characteristics are true, but they're cosmic vibrations. So that when we're wherever we are, and we're deciding what we need next, we look for where the right vibration is, and then we slide into it, and then that's, that's the influence that takes us over. That's as, you know, I, I've always known that I had a reason for being Jewish, but it was odd when my friends just said that to me. For some reason, it was like, oh, of course. That's what I was looking for. I needed this over-intellectual intensity. So being Jewish was a really good idea because it would work for me, being Jewish in America at this particular time. Hope to God I don't have to do it a thousand times, not because I mind being Jewish, but I hope I don't have to just do the same lesson over and over again. Yes. For balance, the... um Latin American children, the Mexican children, have a higher emotional IQ than their Asian and Caucasian counterparts. I wouldn't be at all surprised because, yeah. I wonder if people from India don't have a higher spiritual IQ. Well, all of those things could be true. Yeah, and he was only measuring, you know, this whole study, whatever the study was, was measuring, you know, it in the most um, westernized, narrow definition of what intelligence is. It, It doesn't have any validity beyond that but it is a fact you know, that's a, a factual thing about what it is and you know you, you're you're born in a culture that suits what you want you, you have more heart you have more music you in in bali i i was i've been there in recent times swami was there in the in the 60s but he said you know when there were just the tourists were numbered in the hundreds not in the hundreds of thousands but he said everyone in bali was an artist it was just where you went. Everybody, they, everybody painted and did carvings. and It's just like you, if you were born there, you had this beautiful sense of visual art. That's just how you were. And it was such an integral part of the culture. And you, there are cultures where everybody sings. And, or there's cultures where people pay attention to other people. Many Indians, when they come to this culture, they just, they, it's just so lonely here. How can you, you just never, and, and, in India, traditionally at least, you know, you just, when I was, just recently I was invited to, to dinner at a friend's house in Gorgaon, a family of people who live here. So they arranged for me to come over and they, I had a lovely afternoon with them. And as I was leaving, the man said to me, he said, this time we invited you, but if you enjoyed yourself, next time you just have to come without an invitation. Because that shows that you really did like us. <laughs> And it was very sweet, and I I really thought about that a lot, that now you consider this your home and you'll just come to it. If we have to invite you again, then that's a slight insult to us. Now, how backwards can that be? And so they come to America, and everything is, well, open your date book, and I'll see you, you know, it's like this. And I think in two weeks, we have a couple of hours, we can, I can pencil you in, you know. It's like they just look at us like, what is wrong with you people? Right? (laughs) But it's, everyone has its validity. It just depends. And, and, but in India, then, you're absolutely bound because people are always walking in and you're having to take care of them. <laughs> and when do you have time for your own private life? Private life, why would you want one? Mm-hmm. So then you get to be born in America. Whereas my Indian friend said, not only does the child have his own room, but everything, the room is full of things, and all of those things belong to the child. This is how my Indian friend said it to me, and I'd never thought about it. And you, then you suddenly you see this five-year-old child in a room of his own. It is filled with things, and all those things belong to the child. He's five years old. He has a room of stuff, 
that's all his. And the Indians look at that like, you know, what is wrong with you people? And you have to stop and think, huh? I mean, I don't know what they're like now, but that was traditional. We used to take um, presents to uh, the children of this, one of Master's relatives, and, you know, we, we thought we'd do things for them. We brought them these dolls and two daughters, little girls. And we came back the next time, and the dolls were up in the curio cabinet with all the other gifts. You know, the dolls had never been played with. They were just received as the presents from the Americans and then just put up on the shelf. It's completely outside of our way of thinking. We expected to see them just been dragged around the house, you know, and all broken and used, but not at all. Very, very different. Well, the night of digressions has ended perfectly. Does anyone have anything else that it might even be slightly relevant? Okay. So we talked a lot about all these powers that we don't yet have, but might someday, some lifetimes from now. We will have, because Patanjali just says, as we progress toward enlightenment, these will come to us. And And then we will ignore them because we're so well trained. And I I would very much like to remember, for instance, this class, this book, all this stuff when that time comes. And I'm faced with all of these things. You know, how can, how do we go about carrying all of this forward through lifetimes? Because I feel like I can study this and, but you know, even that is, it's gained it into my brain, which is going to die when the body dies. (laughs) But actually. But stuff has to carry across. (laughs) Um, That's the difference between intellectual knowledge and realization. And seriously speaking. You know, you were born in this lifetime because I know your life well enough to know that you, you know, you were only drawn in certain directions and you were not drawn in other directions. And that was because whatever knowledge you gained prior to that point had translated itself into actual realization. And so at a certain point you start with knowledge but then it translates itself into actual experience. Which is why we have to really be able to tell the difference between merely being able to express an idea and say the idea, and actually, when somebody punches you, to actually respond with the realization. And the, the way you get to realization is you start by hearing the idea and thinking that it's a good one. And then you begin to experiment with it. And gradually, by your own actions and by your own experience, it translates. But you're, you're going through the stages. The Gita describes the stages, where you first just hear about it, then you just think about it, and there's a time when the people tell you truth and you fall asleep while they're talking. That's my favorite part. <laughs> I mean, I, I've actually seen it happen, you know, sometimes when people's relatives are in the room or something, they'll bring them, and I will literally watch them fall asleep because what's being said is just, they can't get it. And, and they're at that stage, but, but they were in the room, so they, they've crossed off the one where when it's said to me, I fall asleep. And then the Gita gradually describes that soon it just becomes your vibration. But I, I, I do, and I've, I've, because you wrote me a poem on the point, you know, I, I try to impress upon my consciousness as deeply as I can what I want to remember. My friend, before she was a yogi, but she was 10 years old before she knew she was a yogi. And... You know, her, her life was not all that terrific. It wasn't horrible. But she remembers being 10 and saying to herself, being a child is not all it's cracked up to be. Don't forget. And she didn't even know why she was saying it. 
But she was saying to herself, you know, this is childhood is no picnic. Don't get fooled again on this one. Later she found out why she said it. So I say that to myself a lot of times. When things happen, I say to myself, you know, try to remember this. I mean, it, it's not like your brain will remember it, but some, it'll be a samskar, it'll be an impression. Meaning, meaning, what I'm really saying is, be conscious of what you're experiencing. Pay attention to your experiences and try to draw them deep into yourself. And I, I was thinking about, um, like you were using the example of using these powers to help people, which seems right. very good, but can also still pull you off. Um, and I guess that's really just a higher octave of what you can say we're going on now. Like we have talents and skills and abilities at our level, um, but we're trying to consciously use them to serve God's work, um, to see it as God working through us, as opposed to us egoically being awesome in our talents and abilities. Um, and it's really just the same problem. That's exactly right. And so if right. we get good at it at this level, then, then that's our realization that we can carry forward and just be applying the same thing at a higher level. But, but, but it, you've un, no, uh, no doubt noticed that, that you master it on a certain level and then it comes back more subtle. And that's just, so you're not, you're not done till you're done, but you just keep learning and you keep going. Maybe some of us will be able, some part of us will be able to recognize. Exactly. Like, oh, oh, wait, I see this. This is the same problem in a different form. You know, um, one Buddha, some Buddhist, and it might have been the Dalai Lama, but some Buddhist, when asked about reincarnation, gave this wonderful answer. Ah, he said, you see all your lives as separate events. He said, it's, I don't. He says, it's one continuous experience. If it was the Dalai Lama, it's because he's always been the Dalai Lama, but... But, but the fact was still interesting. It's one continuous experience. So if from, from last year to now, you have a certain conscious memory of that experience resembling this one, from this incarnation to the next one, you'll have a samskar, is what they call it, a past life impression. So it, you might not know the details, but the essence of it will still be with you. Because you can't, where will it go? You know, it's still with you. And so that's why the word samskars is a great word. It has to be used. You can't, there's no English equivalent. It's that you're this way because you have samskars this way. You're inclined. When I met Swami, I had really deep samskars with Swami. When I had the opportunity to move to the ashram, I had really deep samskars to move to an ashram. That's why, why not? I couldn't even imagine not doing it. it just, I didn't have samskars to live with my family and have a career. And it always puzzled me when I was younger because I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do because what they were all suggesting to me was a total nothing, disconnect. And then when I saw what I did have samskars for, it just was instant like that. But you know, we have all kinds of samskars. The first time I saw Indian, classical Indian dance, it moved me so deeply, I just, I had to actually literally walk away for a while because it was, it's a very deep samskar with me. I've never touched it in this lifetime. But when I saw it, I could feel just, it was way in there. But it never came up, because it wasn't for this incarnation. So we also have those. And so when someday somewhere, I doubt if anyone will remember sitting in this room, but whatever really happened will still be in us. And that's what they promise. Otherwise, it's a pretty depressing prospect. Okay, so we did, just a couple, let me put it on the tape, we did... 337, 338, 
339.